everybody, and welcome back to PodQuest. Uh, on this episode, we have special guest uh, Jim Zub. He is the current writer of the, the Conan the Barbarian series over at Marvel. He's also worked on Avengers, the Dungeons and Dragons books, uh, Samurai Jack, and a whole bunch of other stuff, too. Jim, thank you for uh, for being here. Oh, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, no, um, I was glad we were, could set this up. Um, also, uh, again, sorry for the absolute confusion in my original email to you. Oh, don't um. worry about it. It's, <laughs> uh, we, we had a bit of a back and forth. Um, a lot of times people will get me confused with Zeb Wells, Jim Zeb, Zeb. You know, it all yeah. happens. It's all good. But uh, Zeb's doing great work, by the way, if you guys aren't checking out Hellions. And he's going to be writing uh, Amazing Spider-Man coming up. So uh, I'm really impressed with his work all around, if if anyone's interested in that stuff. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it, you actually mentioned that in the email, too. And, like, that Hellions book is good. Like It is. It's sharp stuff. Yeah. But, yeah, it's, um, you know, it's a good problem to have to be compared to uh, uh, another writer who's rocking it out there. So I can't really complain. And we're both yeah, doing that, fun that's stuff true. over at Marvel, so... Yeah, and so so you're currently writing Conan. Yeah, uh, yeah. I've been writing Conan since um, like February last year, and uh, it's been an absolute joy. It's like a bucket list uh, project for me. He's a character that I've been wanting to – like I've written some Conan projects previously, but getting to do the flagship series and do a you know a longer run on it has just been the best. It's been a yeah, joy. Conan – I might be misremembering this, but Conan was in – uh, Avengers. No um, road not, home. Thank you. There you go. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I was going to say no, no well. surrender, yeah. and I'm like, that's the first one. What was the yeah. second one? Yeah, no road home, and I wrote most of the Conan sequences in that one. Like that's a, you know, both no surrender and no road home were you know team ups. It was uh, Mark Wade and Al Ewing and I all co-writing those uh, weekly released Avengers events with a host of amazing artists. We had, you know, Pepe Larraz and Sean Isaac and, and Paco Medina, just all sorts of amazing, uh, Kim Jacinto, like these incredible artists uh, teamed up with us doing these kind of epic Avenger stories. And the second one, we um, Marvel had gotten the rights back to Conan. And so we were able to bring him into the mix in this really cool, twisted kind of multidimensional story. Yeah, I on it's been long enough now that I don't a hundred percent remember how it goes, but I remember reading it and actually that was sort of I knew Conan from like the like the Schwarzenegger movie. Sure. Um, most people do, yeah. Yeah. And I believe you're older than I am. Um Probably. <laughs> but um there was a there was a cartoon and I wanna say like either the late eighties yes. or early nineties yeah. where like he had yeah. like a phoenix that came out of his shield and yeah. stuff. Conan the Adventurer, it was called. Okay, good. I, yeah. It's just old enough that, like, I don't remember it, but I very vividly remember, like, the, the phoenix out of the shield and everything. No, and I that grew was... up, obviously, saw the original, you know, Schwarzenegger movie, and my brother was a really big sword and sorcery reader, and so I read the original Robert E. Howard stories and, and a lot of the other kind of um, spin-off novels and th- stuff that have been created since then, and then read tons of the comics, a lot of the classic kind of Roy Thomas written comics both the regular conan the barbarian and the awesome stuff the black and white ones in savage sword of conan oh nice okay um and now you now you're writing it yourself which must be awesome it's surreal honestly um it's one of those series that i never even imagined would be possible so when i say bucket list it's like i i wasn't seeking it out with this assumption that it was even possible it just seems crazy to me let alone the fact that i'm writing both conan the barbarian and dungeons and dragons so 
arguably two of the bigger properties in fantasy anywhere. Yeah, like, Lord of the Rings is kind of like the other thing out there. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, but no one's writing new Lord of the Rings stories, you know what I mean? Exactly. So, to have those two kind of properties under my purview at the same time is kind of mind-bending. And they're very different takes on fantasy. Like, Dungeons & Dragons is partially influenced by Conan, but Conan, you know, predates it by a good 30 years, if not more. Oh, wow. I actually didn't realize Conan had been around that long. Oh, Conan is the original. I mean, sometimes you hear it called sort of sword and sandal, but he's like the original fantasy character. Like he is, he is one of, you know, the oldest pulp, uh, literary characters in terms of fantasy. And, and this idea of this character, you know, most people's modern view of him is from either the comics or, you know, the Schwarzenegger movie. And so, yeah, I don't think people realize the tradition that he embodies. He really is. And there, we actually kind of lean into a little bit of that when he's in uh, No Road Home. Because um, we, th- that whole story is kind of a story about stories. It's this ne- neat thing about myth. And one of the reasons why Conan is sort of in there is a bit of a nod to this idea of these greater stories that are being told. You know, and that have been told even before Marvel Comics, you know. So yeah. it's... Uh, yeah, it's really um, a pleasure and an honor to be able to work on the character and to be able to add new stories to the canon. Uh, I had this amazing moment. The last convention I went to in person was October 2019. Uh, I was in oh, Paris Comic Con and Roy Thomas was there and he's written more Conan stories than anyone else. Um, and I, I had seen him at other conventions but never got a chance to meet him. We had an amazing conversation and uh he had actually been doing a story for the new king size conan they did for the anniversary and and the marvel office sent him some of my books just to get him caught up on what was going on and at that point it hadn't been announced that i was doing the flagship book but i told him just in confidence and he was so warm and so nice and welcoming and just like you know you get to meet one of your heroes and and they get to be they're they're the exact kind of person you hope they are <laughs> which is awesome that's the ideal right you know yeah and, like, I I mean, you obviously have a very different experience with creators, like, when you see them at, like, shows and stuff like that. But, like, sure. me as a fan going to shows, like, I have very rarely, like, approached anyone, like, anyone, like, like that has, like, a following and right. had them, had it be anything other than, like, a pleasant experience, which well, kind of like says it- something for the, the, like, the culture around sure it. i mean the vast majority of creators i've interacted with have been amazing uh very supportive really cool just all that you hope that they would be and and i think even when you have a bad experience one of the things you realize when you do a lot of conventions and i've probably been to like around 250 conventions in my wow. career now you you see someone and they're not in a good headspace it's probably not necessarily that they're a jerk. It's just, they're having a bad show or, you know, they had a bad taco with lunch and they're not feeling well, or they just got a bad phone call. Like you have no idea what's going on kind of in the greater whatever of their lives. And so I'm much more even keel on that stuff now, but I think a fan, if that's the only interaction they're ever going to have with that creator, that would really color their view of them. They would be like, Oh, so-and-so is a dick, you know? And you're like, it's, it's not always that simple. There's always other stuff going on that, you know, as, as much as 
you try and be natural, you also need to put on the best version of yourself when you're at a convention. And if I'm not feeling it, if I'm out of sorts or, you know, there's other pressures or things going on, it's better for me to step away from the table and take a break and come back with the the best energy I can rather than sort of drag myself through it, you know? Yeah, exactly. And like every, like you said, everyone has a bad day. Like, frankly, yeah. like you, it's not like you guys are at the show to like walk around and like, you know, like see the sights. Like it, it's right. still work. And after three days, four days of like at the table, thousands of people coming through, like you're tired on a, on a Sunday afternoon or whatnot. Yeah. And it's the two extremes, right? Either it's been really crazy busy and you're exhausted or you just had a slow show and you're just kind of worn out. You're just like low energy, you know, and either thing can happen. And it's just, you do enough shows and you kind of got to recognize both in yourself and in other people. Okay. This isn't a good, this isn't working. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that's something that I try and when I'm talking to new creators, I think they assume every convention is going to be some wondrous kind of magical experience. And I've definitely had amazing stories and, and experiences, but there's slow spots, you know, or store signings where it all goes wrong. And you're like, Oh, this is humbling. This uh, reminds you, <laughs> you yeah. know, that, that it isn't always going to work to your, to your advantage. Yeah. I know. I, I don't expect you to remember this at all. Um, the, ve- I think it was the, I want to say it was the first year that they did Keystone Comic Con in Philadelphia. Oh yeah, yeah, um, that was the first Keystone Comic Con. Um, and yeah, I, I know yeah. it was you and Steve Orlando were there. Mm-hmm. Um, there were a bunch of other people, and it was you, the both of you, and I think there was one other person that did like a, like a Q and A panel. That does not surprise me. Yeah, totally. Um, I forget who the third person was, but I, I can't remember. <laughs> Uh, yeah, this that was like show 2017. was slow. That was a yeah. really they and the and it was one of those weird shows where they actually had too much convention space, so all the aisles were too big, so it made it feel even emptier than it really was, and so it was just that awkward kind of feeling of like, and, oh yeah, and Artist yeah. Alley was in that weird kind of like strip yep. in the back, and then you yep. had the the wrestling and music stage <laughs> off to the right, so it was hard to have conversations. Oh yeah. And it's one of those things where I'm sure when the organizers looked at the map, they were like, oh, this all works. But you forget about sound and you forget about what people are doing in each space, right? Yeah. yeah and- I've had I've had so many weird convention experiences where you're just like, oh, I'm in a terrible spot. No one's ever going to find me. Or, oh, this this show, the audience is not here for what I do. You know what I mean? Like, just for whatever reason, this isn't, this isn't clicking. Yeah. But I remember you guys were talking – like away from your tables in the artist alley. And like, I just, I came up and I just, I, I bothered you both. <laughs> um, oh, I, and, I'm sure it wasn't that big a deal. Like, I think we were all in such a weird headspace that weekend. Oh, I'm, I'm sure. And like, I, I don't mean to say like, I came up and just said like intrude in your conversation, but like, I came up and I was like, excuse me. Hey guys, like, if you ever have a, have a chance, like, would you be interested in like, in like doing an interview? And you were both just like super cool about it. like, you both gave me business cards. You're like, here, sh- shoot me an email. Like, if we have time, and um, like in Steve's case, he he's like, if DCPR is okay with it, like I'm always game, right. and like that's just cool. Like that's cool that like you guys are open to stuff like that, and that you are just you know, yeah, I friendly mean, to it, people for lack of a better just, word. You, there's no point in being you know big ego about this kind of stuff. It's nice to be able to chat about the books and and you know get a little bit of of promotion out there, but honestly, just meet people who are into this stuff the way you're into it, or just expand people's knowledge about the things that you're passionate about. So, yeah. yeah. Uh, but so Conan, 
Um, yeah. So, so you're saying like you got to talk to Roy Thomas about it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and working on the book and working with the team, like both my editor, uh, Mark and Lauren at Marvel. And then of course, working with the Conan properties people and they approve all the stories. So, you know, just getting their feedback has been wonderful because they've got, they're the experts on the character. And although I consider myself pretty knowledgeable about it, it's always nice getting that feedback and knowing that they like what I'm doing or digging deeper in and getting their insight in terms of, you know, what, how they feel the character should be portrayed, you know? Yeah. Which is, and I, I'm, I have read the Conan stuff. Like I, like I read all of, um, all of Jason Aaron's run. I think he did the first 12 and you picked up yep. on 13. That's correct. Um, and like, I like that, like the book still feels, which I think is the right way to put this. It still feels like the same book, but you're both telling a very different story in a very different way. Yeah. I, and, and, you know, I think I'm probably, hearkening back to a more kind of Roy Thomas feel to it. And Jason's got his own kind of beat the way he's doing this, that, that Epic 12 part story, you know, he really wanted to encompass this, you know, Conan in his youth all the way to, you know, the King in one big Epic tale. And I think that's awesome. I really, I deeply respect the ambition and the way he and my mood were able to to deliver on it but for me it was like okay i'm i'm telling a more kind of serialized pulpy story where we've got little segments of adventures and they all link together and so over the course of 12 13 issues you do see a larger pattern form but each one is also its own kind of self-contained adventure and that that yeah that's sort of how i feel you know, the character worked for me when I was growing up reading it. And so that was definitely what I wanted to emulate. I was actually going to ask you if, if like that was kind of like the, the ongoing goal as you continued. Cause I know I, I think the, the second arc is just c- coming closer to its end now, I guess. Right. Right. Is that- so yeah, we're ending with uh, issue 25 and that's going to end the, um, I guess in the book form, it's going to be called land of the Lotus, but it's actually two separate stories. Land of the Lotus is the, the lead one where Conan is in Katai, which is sort of the Eastern part of the Hyborian age. And then we've got another two parter, which leads into the anniversary issue for 25, which is called, you know, when our stories end. And that's, um, a really kind of special one for me because I get to do like it's issue 25 of the current run, but Marvel has this dual numbering where they, it's called legacy numbering where they incorporate the original numbers from the old runs. And so it's issue 300 of Conan the Barbarian. And I've always wanted to do one of these big anniversary issues. I just love those when I was a kid and I, they're so special, you know, to me and to finally be able to contribute and write the lead on one and, and, on a character that means so much to me is just awesome. And so we yeah. do this big kind of blowout and that's coming in September. And I really, really pumped for it. Oh, wow. Is that so? Okay. Yeah. No, I'm sorry. It's June. My time doesn't really make sense oh, anymore. Time, <laughs> I'm like... is, time is gone right now. It's we're all mentally just sort of warped. <laughs> yeah. I'm just thinking in my head. I'm like, okay, so 22 is out now. How does right. it get 25? And so, but no, that, yeah, never mind. That math adds up. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, one of these a month? What is this crazy stuff? These comics. I, I actually, can, I, don't, I don't remember this anymore either. Did Conan have a break during shutdown? Like a longer yes. one than everything else? Yeah. Yeah, not longer. It was about the same as most of the, the Marvel books that were paused. So we, it was like a five month um, pause on the series. 
did that give you a chance to sort of like get ahead on it or did you actually like have to or not have to but did you like pause production on your end like i got a little bit ahead and then we still were you know paused a little longer so i i sort of hung back a bit because we weren't sure what you know as much as i would love to say i knew exactly how long the pause was no one knew how long it was going to go for so i kind of put down a bunch of ideas but for me i i'm a pretty structured writer i like to plan stuff out but in the moment that i'm writing you need to allow for a bit of spontaneity. Like if a better idea hits you in the moment, you don't totally change the story, but you're, you're willing to lean into little synergies on the page, you know? And so I didn't want to overwrite it and then like have it done and then have it just sitting there creaking for months. And then me kind of outthinking myself or, or, or overly revising it until I squeezed all the life out of it. So I sort of like, okay, I've got the outline. I know where I'm going with it. Once we're done the pause, I'll, I'll dig back into the scripting and, and just play it back and forth in my head and know where we're going. Okay. So when you norm, like if, if there wasn't a pause, how far ahead do you normally get to, to go with writing? It just depends on the project. Like I wish there was a simple formula, but some uh, publishers want more lead time. Some of them are right up till the breakneck. You know, you are, you are. Oh, wow it feels like you're throwing train track in front of the train. Like, um, you know, and it just depends on, on their schedule and the artist's availability. Like it's such a variable that I, I don't want to say it's always the same, but usually for, if I'm doing a typical Marvel project or, or DC or something like that, as the solicit is coming out for an issue, I'm usually either just finished that script or, or in the midst of it. You know what I mean? So I'm about four months ahead approximately. Okay, that's, that's, I actually, I never realized that. So, so that's kind of crazy. So like when you read the solicit, like that's just based off of like your outline, essentially of like what like the the story arc's going to be. Usually, usually. Yeah. And so, and that's unusual compared to traditional publishing, like comic book publishing is considered when I talk to traditional book publishers, like I, so my wife and I co-write a series for Random House called the Dungeons and Dragons Young Adventurers Guides. And they're done through the traditional book channels and everything else. And, you know, when we had a year lead time on a book, they were worried about it because they felt like there wasn't enough time. And then I told them that comics were typically four months and they thought we were just insane. Like they <laughs> they're like, how do you do that? <laughs> yeah, that, that's like, that's not healthy. And it's like, yeah, but you just get used to it. Like, that's just how it works. And sometimes it's breakneck. And every so often I would get myself into a situation where I would be writing sections of script and sending those, like throwing them over my shoulder, like breadcrumbs for a wolf that's changing me <laughs> or something. Like, like the artist is right behind me and I'm desperately trying to stay ahead of them. And then other times you've got a bit more lead time. So, so I, I guess, I guess you're not a Marvel method guy then. No, uh, you know, I, I've done it, but I don't like doing it. So for your listeners, the Marvel method was, the way Stan would write back in the classic days and some writers would do, you know, because that was the way that worked for him. And it was a way for him to juggle God knows seven, eight titles, 12 titles a month or whatever insanity he was doing. So he would write an overall outline, give it to the artists. And these artists, you know, they were kind of older seasoned pros. They would just draw the pages and leave space for dialogue. Sometimes they would thumbnail little dialogue ideas in the caption or in the, in the, corners or whatever and then stan would come over and he would just dialogue the whole thing 
And so that became what was called the Marvel method. But very few writers do that nowadays. Like the only one I know of that's currently a Marvel that works with the Marvel method is Dan Slott. So Dan really right yeah Dan writes these these and they're not always broad outlines. Sometimes he'll do a page by page beat like this happens on this page and then this happens on this page. But then he goes back over it and he dialogues it. And I know That's that for surprising. sure. Yeah, because we co-wrote Iron Man together. And essentially, I was the second half of that process where he would send me the outline and then I would do a full script with the dialogue. And then he would go back over it and we would sort of bandy back and forth on tweaking the dialogue. So, Having read like so much of his work, a lot of it is so... It, it seems so planned out that to think that like he's going in and doing the dialogue sort of like, well, he knows where the overall story is going. Like he, he's, he still has the overarching plot figured out. It's just the, in the moment dialogue beats. That's the stuff that he's coming up with. And, um, I mean, it's impressive because I, I can't work that way. Like, I, just I don't, don't think, think I could either. <laughs> like, you know, I was happy to dialogue the stuff. And to add my own sort of pacing and flair to what we were doing on Iron Man. But we were such different writers in that way. It kind of, it really surprised me, you know, when I got the first outline from him and I was sort of like, oh man, this whole section, I can kind of dictate where it's all going. And this other part is very, very specific. And that's, that's cool, you know, but we would have more, almost more productivity just getting on a phone call and chatting for a couple hours. Cause then I could pick his brain about, larger you know thematic stuff or where we were going with the overarching story and i would take notes and be like oh okay i can foreshadow that in the dialogue here so he doesn't have to you know worry about it later or whatever that must be really cool to be able to do that just with anybody too like the like the fact that you like in your job you can collaborate with other people like that and just like hop on a call with them and be like all right so what are you thinking for this like yeah here's my thoughts not everyone enjoys co-writing like some people find it like a tug of war but almost every co-writing experience I've had has been really positive because ideally what you figure out is what each person likes to do and then you let them loose in that area so you can focus on what you like to do. You know, the only time it doesn't work is if you both don't like the same stuff and so it's kind of left fallow in some area. But like most of the time I've been very fortunate. Like when, when we did the uh, Avengers No Surrender and No Road Home, just, you know, Tom Brevoort's casting – picked three people who were really, really compatible with each other. You know, Al Ewing is this big kind of cosmic thinker with really cool philosophical ideas and drama and, and has a deep love of the kind of weird and wonderful corners of the Marvel universe. And then you've got Mark Wade, who's like your, your classic, you know, superhero writer who can kind of do anything. He's like a Swiss army knife and he knows this stuff inside out and he's written everything. And so he can just problem solve like a madman. And then I'm this highly structured kind of writer. And so, you know, who's used to digging deep in a continuity or pulling out little weird old bits and, and things like that. And so we put all of us together and I was obsessed with structuring out the broader story, which neither of them, was as excited about and uh, to be honest, cause it's, you know, it's a lot of work in, in, in no surrender. God, I think we had 22 characters we had to juggle. Right. So I'm like trying to figure out where everyone fits and how we're going to mix up the teams and all this stuff and, and what thread is going to keep everyone sort of rolling. And anytime I ever had a problem, Mark had a solution because he's written more than Al and I 10 times over. 
Uh, and then Al could just come in with these wonderful big picture thematics or these amazing moments that we could plug into all this cool stuff. And we just all got along really well. There was a real gracious quality to it. And um, I came in on the first one feeling a bit like, like the weak link in the chain, like, oh man, I'm not half as experienced as these two guys, but they were so supportive. And by the end of it, it just felt like three musketeers. Like we were all doing this thing together, you know? And that's awesome. And it, and it led into a sequel, which is always good. And yeah, yeah. It was a, such an amazing feeling. Literally the day that the last part of no surrender shipped, Tom Brevoort, our editor contacted us and said, well, this was a joy, you know, to put together. Do you guys want to do it again? And so we already started brainstorming that early for the next. Oh, time. wow. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's gotta be a lot of work to like to put out like a weekly book like that, even if you have a ton of lead time. Yeah. Speaking of lead time, that, that is the most lead time I've ever had on a project, but it also demanded more of us than just about any other project because we had to have, we had three different artists who were drawing the book simultaneously. So, oh. you know, Pepe Larraz is drawing issue one. And I think like Paco's drawing like issue, I don't remember five or six or something. And so if something gets referenced in issue five, we have to make sure it's the same reference that's going to show up in Pepe's issue number three, you know, like we're writing it in order, but then we're drawing it out of order. And so we needed to be way ahead of everybody and these massive reference folders and, and literally um, spreadsheets to keep track of where characters were and who got injured, where, and what's going on. And so that the thing wouldn't, you know, unravel. Yeah. Which makes sense. Yeah. And I know just as like a, like I've been reading comics for decades now, events and weekly stuff doesn't always like uh, it doesn't always hang together particularly yeah. when you have multiple artists working simultaneously inevitably someone draws the wrong costume or someone draws a location differently and and you hit the deadline and everyone just throws up their hands and goes well it's going to press you know what i mean yeah. and we, we got we a book were, at least <laughs> right we were all so focused on making sure it worked you know that that we didn't want to have those pitfalls that we all wanted to deliver something you know great and so tom had built this aggressive schedule we were basically delivering a script every two weeks um in order to keep us all well ahead uh and have as much of it done as possible and so but you know two two weeks on a script as an individual would be a tight schedule but with three of us You'd think it would be three times as fast, but it's not because you're, you're talking about all of it and you're planning, you know, you're, you're, you've got three times the brain power, but you're also overthinking or, you know, trying to figure out everyone's strengths. So it's a different kind of working process, but thankfully we really, really gelled. Yeah. And I remember, I remember when, when it was coming out, um, when, when No Surrender was coming out and like on our weekly show, cause like, like I said before, I forget if we were recording at this point, but like. My two co-hosts don't read comics. So like when I'm talking about comics, fools. it's generally like it's like talking at them for the most part. Right, and right, I agree. Right. Yeah, they're fools. Um, <laughs> so and I'm just like, oh, yeah. And um, they introduce like this character who like she's not like she's not really a, a character, but she she existed before in the continuity. And I don't know where right. this is going. And yeah, we tried to come up with as many cool kind of mysteries and st- cool twists along the way and we knew we would have the advantage of the weekly format that you wouldn't have to wait six months to get an answer you only needed to wait like five weeks you know what i mean and so there was a level of momentum that we could pay off that that was very unique to the 
the release format and we tried to lean into that as much as we could. We set up a bunch of these cool pieces and all these cool mysteries knowing that we weren't going to drag it out. We were just going to hammer all this stuff out as the the weeks carried on. And Which it is was awesome. Fun. Yeah, you also don't have to do a lot of recaps because it's fresh in everyone's mind. They just read the previous one last Wednesday. Now it's this Wednesday. Let's keep the momentum going, you know? Yeah, that was a nice thing that um like Heroes Reborn just now. Yeah, I think they had a pretty they did, it wasn't weekly, but they definitely had an advanced shipping schedule on it. Yeah, I so. think it was like a, a a new core issue was like every other week or so, so it was like right. a month and a half, you got the whole story. And yeah, like it, it wasn't drug out for Yeah, there's some fun momentum you can generate you can generate with it, you know? And it was yeah. it was amazing because you know, if you think about most people I mean, how many people have written the Avengers core book over the year? I don't know, but not a heck of a lot. And then to be able to put out 16 issues in four months, you know, and, and have this block of material that we'd created was, was a real joy. And then to do it again, you know, with a 10 parter, uh, less than a year later was, uh, just awesome. And it, yeah, you know, and you got to create uh, characters for it too, even if exactly. like, like, I mean, even like the Immortal Hulk, like I realize mm-hmm. that's not like a new character per se, but like, sure. that's a very different take on the Hulk. And Oh, yeah. And we were so proud. Like Al came up with the vast, vast majority of that and did such an amazing job as a lead into the, the monthly book. But just to have that nugget in there was awesome, you know, and then you've got Voyager and the Challenger and then on. on Thank you for you know, for saying the name. I've been trying to remember it for no, like the last five no minutes problem. and I could not. <laughs> it's all good. And then on No Road Home, we had a host of new characters as well, like Nyx, the God of the Night and just all kinds of cool stuff we were able to come up with that felt kind of simultaneously classic, but also something people hadn't quite seen before, which is what, you know, you want it to feel like like Marvel characters, right? But yeah, we had a bunch of cool stuff. The Lethal Legion in No Surrender, a bunch of those characters were brand new. And I know Al and some other people have used them in like Guardians of the Galaxy and other places. So that's a joy. It's, a, it's one of those things that when I started working at Marvel, I was really nervous about. Like I was obsessed with, okay, I've got to use the existing pieces because that means it's a real Marvel comic. Do you know what I mean? Like, like yeah. in a fanboy kind of way. And, um, it was on, God, I can't remember which book I was working on. I think it was Uncanny Avengers when I, I wanted to do a particular thing. And I was talking to Tom, my editor, and the character I wanted to use wasn't available. And he's like, well, just make another character that does the same thing. And I was like, I can do that. And he goes, yeah, Jim, that's how we made the Marvel universe. Like, <laughs> that's kind of how it works. And, and the first time I did that and literally the day of the issue being released, some fan has updated the Marvel wiki with this character profile. And I'm like, Oh, I just, I put a little brick in the house of ideas. Oh, this is the coolest thing ever. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. And you don't know in five years, like somebody might like grab that, like somebody that you're a fan of might grab that character for something. And then yeah, it's like, Oh, Oh, that's weird. Like, <laughs> yeah, it's cool. You know, like on champions, we made a new uh, teen superhero, this character called snow guard, this Canadian hero. And the character's still in Champions, like, you know, uh, now being written by Danny Lore. And like, like, it's just, it's cool to see that this character is going to stick around and that people really like them. And the first time I saw cosplay of that character, I was just like, oh my God, that's something that, you know, Sean Isaac and I came up with. And now that character is part of the Marvel Universe. And, and, and like, that's an interesting character too, which makes it even yeah. better. Like the fact that like, she's still being used in the books. Right, right. And that was something that, 
in the past, and I don't think there was any sort of negativity intent with it, but th- there would be a thing where they would introduce a character from some part of the world when the characters would visit there, and then they would go, oh, bye, and they would just leave, and that character would just be sort of stuck in time. Like, the next time you saw him was the next time they traveled to that place. And one of my ideas in the pitch was, look, if they're going to go to Nunavut, like northern Canada, and they're going to find this new character, I want her to come back with them and join the team. That she's not just going to be like, yep, if you ever come to the Arctic, I'm here. Like, that's not her purpose. You know what I mean? And so I'm thankfully that that was something that everyone agreed with editorially and and across the board. And they've been good about continuing to use, you know, use Amka and have her in the book and contribute because I feel like that's the whole point. Yeah. And I think that's one of the things that's like fun about the Champions book, too, is like it's a good place to make new heroes. Mm-hmm. And to have them stick around, because, you know, you, it's all the teen heroes, like, right. not young... every hero can be a, a, um, a legacy character. Right, and, the, and you know, that, that energy that comes from a new young hero, right? And you never know which one's going to become the next, whatever, Ms. Marvel, or the next Miles Morales, or the next, you know, like any of that stuff, right? Like, um, and so why not try this stuff? Why not build some new cool things and see where it goes? Yeah, which... And I mean, that's kind of like, as a, as a writer, like that's sort of like your bread and butter right there is creating stuff, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and realizing that the Marvel universe or any of these kinds of shared playgrounds are places where you need to keep creating and you need to keep building it out. Like you can't just endlessly recycle the same stuff as much as I love continuity. And I love those old classic stories, the best comic book stories the best superhero stories come when you really really shake those characters up like if i ask you you know what's a classic x-men story you know you'd say dark phoenix saga you're like well that you know they killed off gene gray and they did all these crazy things to these characters that at the time felt just insane like how can you do this to my favorite team right or you know uh, uh captain america with the winter soldier you can't bring back bucky like that's that's sacrosanct. What are you doing? And yet that made for such an amazing, you know, story and makes for such memorable kind of stuff. And if you go through the history of these characters, the vast majority of those seminal stories are the ones where they really kick it out, where they try something and they experiment or they shake these characters to their core. And then you're like, yeah, that's a really memorable, powerful story. And that's why it works, you know? So if I'm doing my job, I need to shake these things up instead of just kind of finding myself in a well-worn rut of these characters doing the same thing over and over again. How can I help progress them? How can I emotionally and, and dramatically push them into new cool areas? Decades and decades of story and hundreds upon hundreds of issues. Like you kind of have to do new stuff with them. Like you, it can't always be fighting, you know, like the red skull, if it's cap or, right. you know, Doc and if Hop. it is, if it is, you better find a new way or a threat that you haven't quite seen before. And it doesn't always have to be absolutely transformational, but it's even just finding a new angle on that conflict or finding a new, you know, thing for them to be fighting over or, or what's at stake or any of that stuff, right? Like that's your job is to try and shake it up. So I'm good example. We're talking, you know, about my work on Conan. I'm not going to change the core of who Conan is but I can put him into situations you maybe haven't quite seen before. So I did a three part savage sort of Conan story called the gambler. 
And I wanted to put Conan in a situation where he couldn't just grab a sword and kill his way out. So I put him in this gambling den full of inequity and, and high stakes that where you could literally bet your life away. And he's the bodyguard to this rich merchant who's a blowhard and troublemaker. That guy gets killed. And basically the, the gambling hall decides that Conan has to step in for the merchant. And now he's at the gambling table and everything's on the line. And it's like Conan playing cards doesn't seem like a very transformative thing, but it's a situation again, where he's not playing to his strengths and he has to bluff and he has to mess with these people's expectations of him as a warrior. Yeah. And then when when shit hits the fan and a big combat breaks out, you're like, yeah, it is now Conan doing what he does best. But the way it all plays out is a little unexpected. And he's being used and there's peep, there's a caper happening in and around him that he's trying to understand. And there's there's all sorts of wheels within wheels on the story. And it was like, this feels like a Conan story but one I haven't quite seen before. And, you know, that's kind of my goal is I'm going to give you the ingredients, but I can mix it up or I can, you know, add some new spicy element that maybe you haven't quite tasted before. And let's see what, what we get on the other side, you know? Yeah. Now out of curiosity with Conan, um, because you had like coming into it, you had like Jason Aaron's run where like Mm -hmm. each issue was that sort of, moment in time for Conan. Right. Um, like leading through like kind of his whole life. Mm-hmm. Um, do, do you have any like ideas or desire to like cherry pick some of like those eras that he worked with well, for I mean, like, what you're going to do? Does. So like in my stories, I've rolled the timeline back. So we're in an earlier era of the character. I like him when he's a little bit younger and more impetuous and, and getting himself into trouble. It's more fun. Um, yeah, there's a there's a joy to him also discovering things instead of being like, oh, you know, he's been to this part of the world 20 times or whatever. Um, and so that was just my preferred kind of start point. But um, in the anniversary story we've got coming up, I've kind of got him in his prime. There's a, a very famous Conan story called Queen of the Black Coast where he's on a pirate ship with the love of his life at that point. Um, and they're, you know, like freebooters on the open seas kind of thing. And, uh, it's a, it's an era that there aren't a ton of stories told in that era. I mean, Roy did a big run, but most people have not. And, uh, Belit, which is his, uh, kind of lady love. She does not have a ton of stories, you know, beneath her either. And it's something I've really wanted to do. So kind of focusing in on that era and telling a new story in that space was something I was really excited about doing. Okay. So it's like, you know, J- you know, Jason's covering these high points over the beginning, the middle and, you know, I get not necessarily the end, but the like, later half. Right. Conan in his, you know, when he's a king. And it's like those are all cool places to play. And they're all little playgrounds, you know, that you can hunker down in one spot. And and the character has certain core traits, but he's more, you know, kind of uh, headstrong in his earlier years. And then he becomes an experienced leader and then he becomes a king. And now he has things to lose that he never imagined. Right. So it's just a very, you know, the old man is, is a veteran and he's much more careful, but he's lost some of that inner fire and trying to make sure he doesn't lose it completely, you know? Yeah. And that's was like reading through those first 12 issues. I always felt myself like, oh, I would love to see where this goes. Like, I, I think actually one of the issues where he he buys like the five women as like a 
yep. a ploy to kill the guy was actually yeah. that that love interest, right? That he was trying no, to avenge, not, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, exactly. So you know, she gets mentioned in there, but that's not. Yeah, she's but, not yeah, one she's of, not one of them. Sorry, right, I did right. not do a good job of leading into no, that no, question. No, no worries, no worries. But yeah, it's like, and, and Conan's had dozens of, of, of lovers over the years. The difference, I think, with Belide is that because she's from the Robert E. Howard novels, and they talk about this span of time of them adventuring on the on the sea and whatnot, it's, it takes on an even more mythic kind of proportion. Okay, so is it one of the, just be just because I don't have a lot of like that history with sure. Conan, is it one of those things where like those original novels are sort of like the gospel, so to say, where like I mean they are the canon, right? And they weren't written um, in order in the sense like even Robert E. Howard jumps around to different eras of Conan's life. Like the first Conan story, he's already a king in the original Conan, the first story, right? Like okay. And so it's this weird thing where then a few stories later, the young Conan, the youngest story that Robert E. Howard wrote was Frost Giant's Daughter, which is Conan in his youth. And they talk about some of his earliest days, but they don't actually, it's not like the current timeline kind of thing. So, you know, we've, other authors have fleshed out those eras and we reference those stories. So when I'm talking to my editor, or I'm talking to Conan Properties, I would say to them, oh, this happens before God in the Bowl, which is like a really famous Robert E. Howard story. And he's in his youth. So you're like, okay, it's a young Conan. Got it. Or if I say to you, oh, this is, you know, leading up to Phoenix and the Sword or whatever, you're like, oh, okay, that's King Conan. Got it. Like that, we, those are kind of tent posts in the ground that, that establish elements of canon, right? Okay. Okay. That's, that's actually cool. So you kind of have that, you have that place to kind of like start from, and then you can sort of expand it from there. Exactly. And, and, you know, I'm never going to do like, because the character is established and we know he becomes the king or things like that, it would be easy to say, well, you know, where's the dramatic tension? You know, he's not going to die. And it's like, well, how far can I push this and, and surprise you with how we pay these things off? I mean, you, you know, Spider-Man and Batman aren't going to die either, but that doesn't mean it's not exciting. Right. Yeah. And it, you know. like the main character doesn't have to die. Like, I mean, look at Spider, well, I mean, Spider-Man and Batman for that matter. Like, right. Everyone they Everyone love dies. So it's it. like... You got it. And like you said, like Conan has had so many relationships over his life that it's like, oh, well, this character could be around for a while and they could just go or right. they could be murdered. About, <laughs> right. It, it's about putting the character in these circumstances that you you literally don't know how it's going to pan out. And then hopefully I can surprise you and you're like, oh, that's totally appropriate, but I never saw it coming. So like one of the things I did on my first... Um, story i did into the crucible which was okay, issue 13 bef- before oh, you ahead. get into that um sure. i'm just curious if you were going to say what I, what i was literally just thinking um oh, you, you kill a character in that arc and it legitimately crushed me oh. um <laughs> <laughs> thanks man yes yeah i introduced this character and did all the ingredients of what you expect i introduce a a, a female character who's clearly like she she fights with Conan and then they're going to become allies. And you're like, oh, this is going to be the love interest for this arc. And literally pages later, I kill them. And and readers were like, what the hell? Because I wanted to show that you couldn't plan, that you you don't see what's coming and you don't always get to choose, you know, and Conan doesn't get to choose who lives or dies, particularly in this death dungeon that we put together. 
And that was a really, it was an interesting moment because even though I, I wrote it in the outline, even my editor kind of forgot how quick it was going to happen. And so when I sent that script and he was like, his comment, you know, he's writing comments on the script and his comment was just, this is even more brutal than I imagined. Like you, you literally give it to us and then you immediately take it away. It's like, yep, everything's. Just the way that, that it's actually plotted out in the book too, where. And I don't want to spoil everything, but you, sure, you're like captions for yeah, it. Yeah. And like two panels earlier of like, <laughs> I don't know, if, I don't know verbatim, but it was something like, you know, like she can't die like this or something. Like she's, exactly. too, she's too yeah. strong. Like she'll be fine. And then like the last panel is basically like that, like They're realization that she's dead. Yeah. And it's like, well, fuck. <laughs> yep. Yep. And that was really important to me that we set the bar high in terms of what was at stake. And that doesn't have to be Conan. That's everything around him and the people that I've built you this little emotional bond with. And then, but what's interesting to me was like, she um, puts Conan on this quest. She tells him about this sword that's in Garchal in that city. And, and that her quest is to get that sword back and return it to its master in uh, Katai. And so Conan ends up at sort of to honor her memory takes on that quest and ends up traveling east and gets the sword and and now has to return it. And that's kind of where we're currently at is that even though she has died, she has this ripple effect on the story that it's not just a moment. It's like changes the course of his life there, you know, and that that meant something to me where it's like, okay, we can still I can drop these rocks in the pond and they'll ripple outwards in cool ways that maybe readers don't expect. And then when she talks about Katai or she talks about her Lord, uh, when we finally get to meet him in the comics, there's been this buildup over six, seven issues that you remembered her talking about him way back when. And now Conan's face to face with this guy. And you, you actually, you, you make a point to, you don't, you don't force feed it. As like you're reading through those issues, but like every so often it's brought up why he has the sword and like what, why he's even where he's at as just like that, like, oh yeah, this was like, you know, eight months ago or what have you. Like, right. Here's a, here's just a, it's not even a recap. Here's just some dialogue, like to jog that memory. And it's it's other characters, you know, reacting to him being there. Like, what are you doing in this place? Why do you think you should be here or whatever? And he just responds very bluntly and honestly, because that's the Conan way, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and this is what I'm here and I'm returning the sword and I'm getting my treasure and I'm getting the hell out, you know, or, or that's what he'd like to do. And then everything works against him to actually being able to pull that off. Now, I do have a question about Conan. Sure. So you, you wrote the language for that first arc. <laughs> Yes. So in Into the Crucible, what I wanted to do, again, it's that idea of what have I never seen before? So normally in most of the classic Conan comics, Conan just goes to a part of the Hyborian Age and is able to interact with people. Like they just all speak some sort of common trade language or they don't really deal with it. It's like Star Wars. Yeah, ish. Or or the characters will... Maybe if they're speaking a foreign language, they'll have a little aside and they'll do those square brackets and then translate it for the reader. And I wanted to put Conan in a situation where he did not know what was being said. And so he had to infer everything from body language and people's facial expressions. And I thought, wouldn't it be cool to leave the reader kind of in on that mystery that they also didn't know exactly what was being said and had to infer it from what was being shown in the panel? 
And uh, it was pretty ambitious. And so I came up with a language for, you know, that area for uh, Utarakuro where they're talking to each other. And every time I would have characters speak, I would fill in these words in a spreadsheet so that if we were going to use them again in some way. So if they're talking about the champion of this arena, they always say it the same way. Or if they're talking about killing or fighting or, or you know, the contest or any of these things, those words would come up again in their word balloons, even though the reader, it's gobbledygook in the sense the reader doesn't know exactly what's being said. And then in the final issue of the story, we actually published in the letters page all the words. And if you go back, you can pick out those words and see them being used in very specific contexts, in very specific scenes. So when when you were writing it, then were you like double writing it where like you were writing out what it was saying and then writing it in like the made up language? Right. So I was writing the made up language. And then um, I yeah, exactly. I would have the other lines in there as well in brackets for my editor. So, you know, he understands what we're covering in this. And, and trying to also make sure that the fictional language took up approximately the same amount of word balloon space as the translated stuff. That that if a character was barking orders really quickly, that there would just be a couple words in the word balloon. And if they were saying something more involved, that there was this rambling kind of text. And, you know, even because I wanted to feel like a real language, we would have different versions of words, like the past version of a word or a present version of a word, or, um, you know, the, all the little sounds that go between words, like saying the or is or at or any of that kind of stuff. We would just have different sounds that we were putting in front of some of these words to make it feel like this was being spoken, not just kind of gobbledygook code or something. Yeah, that's on, like, that is just a crazy thing to think about. Like, like, cause I mean, you were just saying earlier, like, uh, on like a good book, you're like maybe four issues ahead, four months ahead, right? Give or take. So like to come up with a language for that was a three or four issue arc, I think, right? Yeah, yeah, it was uh, four issues, and it, it it was it was a challenge I gave myself because again, it was like I'm, I'm writing the flagship book. I really want it to be special, and I want to give myself challenges and and give the reader challenges. Like not you haven't read a Conan story quite like this before, or you haven't seen him up against this kind of threat. Plus the mystery that he does not know exactly what's being said about him to his face. Like people could betray him and plan and plot around him. And he doesn't know with a hundred percent certainty. There's a translator kid who's with him and the translator kid is paraphrasing and sometimes would purposefully misconstrue or change the translation. So in those moments, the kid's saying something to Conan, but he's kind of curbing it one way or another to his advantage. Okay, and I was actually going to ask you that if, yeah. if, because I, I honestly, I did, I, I read through all of like the the notes in the back that were like this mm -hmm. means this, this means that, but I did not go sure. back and actually like translate. Yeah, it. and it's <laughs> it's like a, it's an Easter egg. Like if you're if someone's really wants to, they can go and they, it will all make sense or it all functions. But obviously, the story still functions without it. You can just read it straight through and enjoy it. Yeah. And I I'm sure there's a Reddit thread of somebody that like translated every single one of those things somewhere for you. Probably, and that <laughs> you know t that would be a joy that someone goes to that extra effort because they enjoyed it enough to do so, right? Yeah. And you know, I did it for me, and I did it for the effect it would have on the page. But really, it was about can I pull this off? And you know, my editor was like, "This is." ambitious like because you you're leaning so heavily on the artist like raj antonio who drew that story 
I'm telling him what expression I need or what body language we need in order to make the language make sense. And then I've got to lean on him so much more than normal because it's like everything has to come through. The subtlety has to come through and what the character, how they're posed instead of it just being, okay, if, if the drawing's not good enough, I can always fix it in the word balloon. Like I don't have that crutch to lean on. Right. So oh, I didn't think about that. Yeah. It, you know, the, there would be little moments where I was like, I want, I just want it to come through in the body language or I want the bravado of the character to come across. So you don't know what they're saying, but you know, they're insulting Conan because they're looking at him like he's a piece of crap, you know? And so it's like that, that was so important to me that, that it worked without the word balloon being clear. Uh, even though I, I'm, I'm translating the thing on the page in a way. Right. So, now- did you know, like going into it, who was going to be doing the artwork for it? I didn't know on the first issue. Like as I was finishing the first issue, Raj got cast on the series. So, um, so you got you lucky know, having somebody that could actually like. Yeah, I was really nervous, honestly. <laughs> that that you know, because I wrote this really ambitious story, and we're going to do this thing, and you know, you, you always hope that the collaboration is going to work out. And thankfully Raj was a really good fit. And Corey Smith, who's drawing the book now is stellar. Like land of the Lotus is one of the best looking damn stories I've ever had the the joy to write. And he just, you know, it's hard to explain to people. Um, a lot of fans, I think they assume that if a story's bad, it's because the writer wrote a bad story. And if the art's bad, it's because the artist drew a bad or whatever, but it's not, always a clear delineation. Like if a, if an artist has a crappy script, they can, you know, draw a crappy story or, or really have a hard time making it look good. And if, if an artist does a crappy job on the page art, no matter what I write, it's not going to work. You know what I mean? Like I, I can only do so much with the text if the drawings aren't there. Art style has like an impact on that too. Like that, that's, that's actually why I was asking if you knew who the, who was doing the art ahead of time. Yeah. It's, it's even, you know, it's just, if they're a bad fit for the style of the story or their, their facial expressions are not clear enough or just any of those things, it could have, it could have deep sixed it for sure. Right. Yeah. And, and, you know, I don't want to throw shade, but I've definitely had stories over the years where I've worked on stuff and the artist came on after or came on later, wasn't a good fit or, or didn't jive on what I was trying to do in terms of the theme. And so it doesn't come through in the final and, you know, the reviews are pretty mixed and you're like, eh, you know, it's not my fault, but it's not necessarily the artist's fault. Like it just wasn't a good collaboration. Yeah. And, and that's a, so that's a bummer. <laughs> it is absolutely. Especially, you know, you, you bust your butt on these and they bust their butt on those pages and to not have it come out the way you want on the other end is obviously a disappointment, but I've had so many good collaborations and the vast majority of the stuff I've done, I've been so thankful because the artist elevates the material. You know, when I get to work with someone like Stephen Cummings or, or Max Dunbar, like that stuff is next level. Like those guys, they want it to be even more epic than I imagined it, or they want to push things to, to amp up those emotions even more than I'd hoped. And that's all you can ever ask for from a great collaborator. You know, yeah. like it's, it's such a joy to work with someone and to see that page art coming in and your excitement builds with every page because they're doing it even better than you hoped. You know? Yeah. I'm actually glad you mentioned Steve Cummings. Cause like wayward is one of the prettiest books. Like I've read in oh, years. Thanks. And yeah, yeah. 
Steve is a stunning artist and Tamara Bonvalan who did the colors on it. Just they meshed so, so well together and it just came through on every page, yeah. you know? I don't, yeah. are you an anime fan by chance? Yeah, absolutely. Like I, um, pretty, it, it depends on which era you want to talk about, but I was into the anime fandom quite early. My brother went off to university in the early nineties and, um, at the university of Waterloo, they, they are science fiction club. A bunch of, um, Japanese engineering students, uh, had come to the school and they brought their comics and their, um, anime stuff with them. And it just like spread like wildfire. And oh, although I'd wow. grown up watching stuff like star blazers or Robotech or things like that. And I kind of vaguely knew that they were from Japan. I hadn't actually seen Japanese animation, you know, subtitled or, or from the source like that. And my brother came home for Thanksgiving that year. This is 92 maybe. And he brings, uh, you know, like, a copy of Akira and Black Magic M66 and Bubblegum Crisis and all these kinds of older. Like the classics. <laughs> like, well, they're classics now, but at the time they were contemporary. That's, yeah, that's um, true. And, and I watched this stuff and my mind was absolutely blown. I'd never seen this kind of these cool science fiction and cyberpunk stuff and amazing animation and, and exciting and violent and, and wild kind of storytelling. And it really, really hooked me. And then we started watching. Because, you know, the depth and breadth of, of anime uh, and manga, they've got romantic comedies and they've got historical dramas and they've got, uh, uh, you know, like anything you can sports and just everything. Yeah, it's so much you can imagine. <laughs> and so I started digging into all of them. Like one of my favorites from back then was um, Kimigura Orange Road, which is like a, a rom-com with a bunch of psychic kids running around a high school getting into trouble. Like it's, and, and another one I liked was video girl. I, which is this kind of rom-com, you know, kind of thing. Like I just, I'd never seen that sort of stuff before. Especially not in cartoons. Just, <laughs> no. And so the depth and breadth of it was what really blew my mind. And so, you know, one of the things I avoided when we started doing wayward like Wayward such an interesting genesis of a series because it was really Steve and I both deeply collaborating in an unexpected way. Like I had done my creator own book, Skull Kickers, which was this action comedy sword and sorcery. And that put me on the map for a lot of people. And then we came around to do Wayward. And that really came from the time I had been, I had spent, uh, I was at the Udon studio for about eight years as an artist and a project manager and Steven and I had worked on a bunch of projects together, but it was a lot of freelance illustration and advertising design stuff and things like that. And one of the books that we made at Udon was this book art book called vent. And it was a way for us to come up with a bunch of cool ideas that we would control and own uh, the individual artists. And, and I came up, I had a graphic novel kind of pitch thing in there and Steven did this picture of this girl standing at the top of a stairwell and those creepy cats, you know, all around her. And I was like, what's this? And he goes, Oh, I want to do like a Japanese ghost story. I was like, that's awesome, man. I really hope you make that. And then years later I did skull kickers and we got back in touch with each other. And he's like, Oh, you know, I've been doing the commercial stuff for a while. I really want to do my own creator own book. Uh, I haven't done it in so long and I'm just missing it terribly. And I was like, whatever happened to that Japanese ghost story? And he was like, oh, I haven't done anything with it yet. I don't even know what the story is. And I was like, oh, man. And I had been working on a fantasy idea. And it's pretty derivative, you know, fantasy in the modern world. Like, what if you had 
those classic kind of fantasy elements here in, in the here and now. And a lot of people have done that stuff before. So I wasn't sure what my twist on it would be. I was trying to figure that out. And then Steven started talking about all the cool kind of Japanese ghost stories and legends. And I knew some of the yokai stories and things like that. And I thought, oh, that's the trick. Like we don't do Eurocentric classic kind of British or Germanic fantasy. We'll do Japanese supernatural stories in the modern world. And we'll use this, this kind of thing that Steven had come up with. And so we both started collaborating on it really heavily. And I did a ton of research and we brought on, uh, Zach Davison, who is literally a Japanese monster scholar. And oh, he wow. was really helpful with, with gathering resources and things like that. And then I had already been to Japan several times with the Udon studio, but this just gave me another excuse to travel and do more research. Cause we didn't want one of Steven's goals. Like Steven Cummings lives in Japan. He's raising a family in Yokohama he didn't want Japan to be portrayed the way he'd typically seen it. Um, anytime there's a foreign story, it's all like ninja temples or like, you know, neon kind of high rise buildings. And it's like, yeah, those are some iconic things that are in Japan, but they're not, they're, they're a stereotype of a photocopy of, you know what I mean? They're yeah, so it's Shinjuku basically is what you yeah. see in, in everything. And it's like, yes, Shinjuku is a real place and, and Akihabara is a real place. But there's so many amazing other places in Japan that are off the beaten path and are fascinating and visually distinctive. And so he said he wanted the Tokyo that he drew to be the real Tokyo. And that was sort of my starting position was, okay, we're going to use the real myths and we're going to update them and we're going to use the real locations. And so I would travel and we'd take tons of photos, but we'd also do like Google Earth links and I would literally wander around the neighborhoods and be like, okay, this is where this entire scene is taking place. In um, in Wayward Deluxe, we did these beautiful deluxe hardcover collections of the series. In the third one, at the end of the series, I posted a, a, a map of Tokyo, and I put specific numbers down for this scene takes place in this neighborhood. Like, you can go there. Oh, that's super cool. And you will see that park and those buildings and that subway stop, like that is the real thing that Steven was using as the source, you know? That's awesome. And so, yeah, it just meant a lot for us. We've had some fans over the years do photos trying to reproduce angles from the comic, you know what I mean? Like, which has been a real kind of fun puzzle for them and for us to see them them find those places, you know? Um, and so Steven's such a, an incredible draftsman. He was able to make those places come alive and you know, people assumed that we were making up most of it, but it was like a bunch was adapted from real myth and adapted from these real places. And that's what made it, it was kind of a, a fun and very unique sort of writing process for me. Yeah. And I know, so funny enough, like the, the two places that that book goes are the two places outside of the U S that I've actually been to. Like I, I was in Japan in 2019 and I was in Ireland about 11 years ago. That's Um, awesome. Nice. And it's funny, like, I, I had read Wayward prior to going to Japan, because, like, it came mm-hmm. out before then. But um, after we kind of set this date, I actually bought the trades on Comixology so I could, like, refresh real quick. Awesome. Um, and, like, I ended up, rather than just refreshing, I ended up just reading all 30 issues again. <laughs> um, Sweet. And, but, and Zach's essays in the back all about culture and mythology are so useful, too, because they just, it meant that we didn't have to over-explain in the stories. That, that characters could talk very normal without having to, you know, look at the reader and, and, and info dump all the time, you know? Ex- exactly. And just, just to what you were saying about, like, you guys wanted it to be real places. Um, mm. 
seeing some of like the like captions of like where like where something was happening i'm just like i was there like I, like i yeah. remember specifically one of one of the locations and one of the issues was um ueno park yeah. and i like literally our hotel was across the street from there nice so <laughs> one of the things that was most amusing for me was at the start of the series i had gone to japan and did a bunch of research and near the end of the series i was in japan but midway through there was a huge section where i was overwhelmed with deadlines here and i was just at home working and so some of these locations were places i had never been but steven would send me reference or assure me this would make for a good spot and and like when the the kids are holed up in that temple and they're defending it uh, against the Japanese defense force. Um, I had never been there, but we wrote a whole sequence in that temple area in the surrounding park. And the next time I went to Japan, I traveled there. I went to that temple and it was the weirdest feeling because I'm walking around this place and I kind of vaguely know it because I had gone around it so much with Google Earth and, and put together reference and Steven had been around there. And I was like, oh yeah, that's the entrance where the tank rolls in and that's the steps where they fight and like i had vaguely kind of been there but i'd never been there you know it's almost I mean? like deja vu yeah yeah it was kind of funky uh but an amazing experience too because it felt the fact that i could show up there and walk in and go yep that was it that was what we did you know like that that just speaks to steve's draftsmanship and the quality of what he was able to put together with it yeah, but um, that actually that that explains a lot. Like that's why I was actually asking you if you had been a fan of anime because it just has that like, it doesn't feel like an anime, but it does at the same time. Sure. Well, but we're drawing upon a lot of the similar mythological elements. Oh, so what I was saying was in the first arc specifically, I downplay the amount of anime or manga references. Like I don't have that stuff on billboards, and I don't have people walking by bookshelves full of manga or things like that, even though in Japan proper, particularly Tokyo, you see a lot more of that. Yeah. And then in the second arc, once we, you know, uh, once we introduce Ohara and she's like reading manga and talking about how she wants to have a love story, like the books she reads, I felt like a little more comfortable. We could lean into some of those tropes. And also because she was a fangirl that it, that we could speak to that idea of that stuff without tipping into like still making it feel like real Japan. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, because like you said, like you if you could go to a place that you don't expect to find a wall of manga and find right. a wall of manga. But I didn't want it. If I felt like if we did it in the first arc, people would think we were pandering, even though it really is everywhere. Like I remember being in Tokyo when the first uh, Evangelion movie came out, and it's like everywhere. It's on. It's on snacks. It's on. Literally, they had a, a a bread, you know, you could buy bread at the grocery store and there was a giveaway, you know, with the Evangelion characters slapped on the packaging or or you would just be going down the street and there's a huge billboard or it's slathered all over the subways. And it's yeah, like, it's crazy. <laughs> it is. It's amazing. But but I felt like if we put too much of that anime imagery in the first arc, like people would be like, oh, come on. It's not, there's not that much of it. Yeah. It's if like, they've never been there before, they're not going to realize like, yeah, they're going to think we're like amping it up. And it's like, actually in the first arc, I turned it way down and then we slowly kind of dialed it back in, you know? Yeah. Which, which is actually like, and you know what? I hadn't really, really realized that when you say it, but like now that like, I, I think back, like you do see more of that, like background stuff as like the, right. the story goes on. Yeah, yeah, I just felt like more comfortable with it as we got deeper into the series and that we'd established our bona fides. You know what I mean? Like 
that was something so early on, you know, when we announced the series, I think there was a little bit of fear of like, oh, this is just going to be some, you know, Americans doing anime kind of thing. And it was like, that's not our intent. Like I was playing this more like a Vertigo series. Like we're just going to do cool supernatural mythological stuff. It just so happens to be set in real Japan, you know? Yeah. And I mean, that book too, like I like I was saying about the, about um, that first arc of Conan, um, you do have a knack for like just crushing people's hearts with <laughs> characters. So Thank you. <laughs> well, it, you know, it's one of those things where, I don't know. I, I, I don't want the reader to settle in and be like, Oh, I know exactly where this is going. And so, for example, at the start of Wayward, everything in that first arc says they're all going to be a perfect team. They're going to be like the Scooby gang or something. They're all going to get together and then they're going to go beat up monsters. And it's like right at the end of that first arc, I kind of shatter the team before they've even formed. And now you're like, are they even going to survive? And, and, they don't all get together as a group until basically issue 10. If you, if you read through, they're not all really assembled and working in the same direction until issue 10. And even then it kind of goes off the rails almost immediately after issue 10 and the team can barely hold itself together. Yeah. Cause you don't that, really have that proper team up until almost no. like the last issue really like right, where like right. everybody was, is there. That was by design because real, you know, teenagers don't all get along and, and you put them in this intense and stressful circumstance and there's just no way it's going to run smoothly. And I didn't want them all to have the same mission and the same purpose and the same point of view on it, because that feels like it's just too easy. It's just too easy to have all these characters. Oh, you're the leader and we're all going to follow you. We'll do whatever you say. It's like, this isn't that kind of book. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, and I, I think I'm, Maybe that's just in my nature, because when I even when I wrote uh, when I wrote Thunderbolts, everyone was fighting against the leader, and you know, like everyone's struggling and pulling against each other. Uncanny Avengers was a real, you know, everyone at cross purposes and trying to figure themselves out. And I feel like that's where the drama comes from. That's where the sparks come from. When when I was growing up and I was reading X Men, or even Avengers or any of them, the stuff I really remember is when the characters were at cross purposes with each other, not when they were all unified, but when they were all desperately trying to get through a tough situation or someone making the wrong decision and everyone else having to live with it, you know? Yeah. And I guess like, like thinking about it outside of like the sword and sorcery stuff, like you, you do kind of have a, I don't even know the right word for it, but you kind of, you get these team books where like nobody seems to like each other. Like, like the Thunderbolts, <laughs> uh, the, yeah. you, you have the wayward, um, even like yeah. champions to an extent, like there's a lot, like they're teenagers. Like you said, like they, they butt heads a lot. Yeah, I just don't want it to be easy. I just feel like it's, you know, I the drama should be without and within. Like, they should be dealing with outside problems and inside problems. You know, I did a, a book at Comixology Originals um, that's now coming out in trade through Dark Horse called Stone Star. And it's ostensibly, like, a bit younger in terms of its its age group. Like, it's, you know, colorful and adventurous and all this kind of thing. And it looks like it's going to be this joyous kind of oh, all these aliens and robots and big colorful action. And it is. And after the, in the, at the end of the first book, we've kind of pulled the team together and you think, oh, now they're all going to go. It's all going to work. And immediately we start the second arc and we start unraveling it. Like people start making mistakes and they stop trusting each other. And you, you kill so, somebody that people like a whole bunch. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's just like, again, I just don't want to make it simple. I don't want you to be able to see 
where the end is coming from a mile away. Cause that just feels boring to me as a writer and a reader, you know? So what can I do to sort of shake that up? And I feel like, you know, even when I've written, so we did the Avengers together. It was like, we still want to kind of yank the chain around and surprise you and pull you in unexpected directions. That's where like in no surrender, having a character like living lightning be the big hero at the end of this cosmic kind of adventure that just felt cool to me. Like Al came up with it as a concept and I just loved it because yeah, it's like this, this character who's never gotten their due gets to be the one to save the day. Like that's cool. Like that there's something very appropriate about that. And, and just different, interesting, you know, and unexpected. Like, yeah, it's, it's unexpected. Like even, even like the, just to, to go back to wayward, even I don't. I don't want to spoil who dies because sure. I, I'm sure people haven't read it. But multiple uh, characters die. Yeah. Um. But like, the, there is a character that dies. Um. It's kind of heartbreaking. Like, yeah, viciously, viciously. Uh, like, I, I even though Stephen knew that was coming because I told him I send him the script and he calls me up and is just like, "Wow, man! Like, you really, uh, you went there." And I was, I was like, "Yep, we got to do it. Like, it's you know, otherwise it doesn't matter. Otherwise it won't." the reader won't care, you know? So, yeah. And like, I remember, I, re- I even re- just, especially having reread it. Like I remember when that was happening and I'm just like, all right, well just teleport. Like you guys just teleported, just teleport. <laughs> and like, I'm, I'm going through the page and I'm like, why aren't they teleporting? Like just teleport back to where you were. They'll sure. heal. Everything will be good. And then you come back, you deal with, you deal with the, the, the stuff here. And like, no, you just, you, you kind of let it go for a couple pages. And then that character was dead. I'm just like, well, shit. Like, <laughs> yeah, it's not that simple. You can't solve it that easily. That was the thing, right? Yeah. And the characters not knowing how to fix it in the moment that, that, yeah, you know, you have the greater knowledge as the reader to see from the hundred foot view. Oh, they need to do this. But in the moment, they're emotionally trapped by the situation and they're not able to see it. That was one of those things. Every so often I would get uh, a letter from a reader and they would say like, uh, you know, I can't believe you had Rory or Ayani or any of these characters do these things. And I, and I would say to them those same things where I'd say, you're looking at it from the outside because you know what the villains are doing. You know what, what the government's doing. You know what the, the, our heroes are doing, but they don't see all of that. All they see is the immediate threat and the problem that they're trying to deal with and their own inner turmoil. Right. And so I'm trying to deal with them as teenagers, not just, perfect paragons of of heroism you know yeah and you even seed into like the the dialogue itself like when i like when i was just saying like just teleport like i think one of one of like the the characters that knows what's going on is just like oh yeah you can't do that like they won't survive like yeah we we could send them but they're going to die and i and issues before that um rory actually says it's like the last time i tried to do this like we nearly died like i can't do this again right Right. That, that I just wanted to take the easy answers off the table. You know what I mean? The other thing that's a lot of fun. And I sort of, like I was talking about with the Conan stuff, but we do this a lot in wayward is, is a stray line of dialogue or a stray concept from an earlier issue will bubble back up 10, you know, 15 issues later. So it's like, you don't, you know, Rory's mother is kind of this crucial point in the early part of the story. And we don't really talk about her dad. He gets meant, she gets like, like he gets mentioned in, in passing conversation and you're just sort of like, Oh, he's off somewhere else. And so when he finally enters the story, you're like, what is this all about? Like, how's that going to play? You know? Yeah. And you don't expect it to go the way that it goes when he's introduced. Nope. You think, okay, well like 
things just happened. Like yeah. he's obviously come here because those things happened and right. And you don't realize he's part of the the wheels within wheels, right? And yeah. so that was yeah, it's fun to sort of set up those dominoes and then knock them down later on and keep the reader guessing. And every so often, you know, like I'll know what some of them are going to be and sometimes I'll have one plan and then as I'm planning out future stories, I realize, oh no, it's even more this, or I have to go even further. And so it's something like the father where I think early on in some of my earliest sort of story outlines, he was much more benign. Like he was being used. And then I was like, no, that he has to make, he has to make choices. He has to have done this on purpose because otherwise he's too passive. Like it's not, it's, it's not dramatic or or interesting enough if he's just sort of getting pushed along. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, and I just yeah. like it would not have had the same impact if, no. if that was the case. And, and, and I think it's because you don't know who the character is yet until you put them down on the page, and sometimes they sort of surprise you. Like when I introduced him, and he was even just going through, um, like passport security to get into the country, and he's just being a, a lippy, mouthy guy, and I was like, oh, I can feel him kind of growing here on the page, like he's. He's not putting up with any shit and that's just going to define him. He's this, you know, very standoffish guy who thinks he has all the answers. Oh, okay. Well, then this all leads much more logically to this end. Do you know yeah. what I mean? Now, yeah. do, do you think you'll ever like go back to Wayward? I don't know. Like Steven and I have talked about it and it's one of those weird things where I'm of two minds of it, right? So first of all, I love working with Steven. I love working on that book. It was a really, like, it's like a time capsule for me. Every project is a time capsule. I I can remember distinctly where I am at certain points in the process. Sometimes I remember where I was when I was writing an issue. Sometimes I remember where I was when Stephen was sending art. Sometimes I remember where I was when, when the issue came out on the stands, like I did a signing or I was in Japan or something like that. Um, and so it's very special to me, particularly be, something like a creator-owned book, because because it's yours. It wouldn't exist. Like I love working on Conan and I love working on the Avengers, but those books will exist after I stop working on them and people will never, they might say I did a great job, but I didn't come up with the Avengers. You know what I mean? And so, but if someone says wayward is their favorite comic, that thing never existed if Steven and I hadn't built it. So there's something extra special about that. And, and yet in my mind, some of the most, satisfying books for me as a reader have been the ones that come to a close. Do you know what I mean? That they don't, that they don't stretch it out till you no longer give a damn. Right. The fact like some of the, those vertigo books, whether it's preacher or Sandman or, or, you know, the invisibles are like really cool series that had a distinct finish. And you're like, put a milestone down this book exists at this period of time and it's finished and you can read it all and enjoy it. And, and the only thing I fear is coming back for a second bow and it feeling like, like a bad tribute album or like we're, you know, we, we don't have the clarity of purpose. Like I'd almost rather make a new book with Steven. So then you're like, Hey, if you liked wayward, you're going to love this but it's also its distinct own thing. Do you know and what I mean? And honestly, that would be fine too, because honestly, you guys worked really well together. So like, I'd be yeah. fine just buying that new book also. <laughs> right. And, 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 you know, and that way wayward 
is this six trade paperback or three deluxe hardcover series that exists and is complete and it never feels like it's just sort of wearing out its welcome, you yeah. know? And 30 but, issues but is like a nice run too. It is, right? And it, now I can't say, therefore, I will never go back to it because if the right idea struck and if Steven was, you know, hyper-focused in the same way and we were both on the same page and said, no, we can tell a really cool story that picks up where it left off or has something new to say about that supernatural world, I would want to leave that door open. But I just don't want to do it because it's almost like the team thing, like I talked about before. I don't want to do it just because people expect it. I don't want to do it because, well, you got to do it. If something's successful, you got to make a sequel. And it's like, yeah, sure. But do I? You know, like, is that is that my yeah. goal? Just to 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 go back to the same worn, you know, thing? Or is it better that Steven and I come up with something that we think is really cool now and launch it? You know, like... That's kind of where my head's at with it. And the same thing with, you know, Max Dunbar and I have talked about doing stuff like we're doing Stone Star, but then we want to do other creator on things down the line. And it's like each of those is going to end up being their own little time capsule. Like Skull Kickers is who I was as a creator from 2010 to 2015. And the things I thought were funny and the things I thought were cool. And it's still me. I still love all that stuff, but I'm no longer the person who wrote that I'm I've done a bunch of other things and I've learned a bunch of other things. And so like skull kickers last year, I did a Kickstarter for a 10th anniversary special that now we're finishing production on and is going to go off to press and go off to our backers. And then eventually we'll release it through image. Um, it is some of those elements of old skull kickers, but it also embodies a lot of things I've learned about comic book storytelling now. And what I think is funny now because I don't just want to stand still and and do the same old, same old, you know? Yeah, you you want to have that that nostalgia for the characters, but you want to also say that, like, you've, you've grown, the characters have grown, because you've right. grown. And I, you know, you deeply appreciate that the fans want more of the thing that they like from you, you know? But you also need to recognize that you're not the same people. Like, as much as people, like, whatever classic run, you know, Chris Claremont and John Byrne on X-Men. Everyone loves that run. And oh my gosh, what an incredible classic era of comics. You couldn't recapture that magic if you wanted to. Even if you got the same people and you put them on the book, it's not going to be that book. It can't be that book. We're, they're not the same creators. They don't have the same priorities. That you know, The world has changed. And you need to keep that, enjoy what that was and and appreciate what it what it was and then be able to separate and go okay i would love to read new chris claremont stories i would love to read more john byrne stuff or whatever but not necessarily try and just grab the old thing again and do it over again you know yeah and it's nice that like you said like it's open for you if you want to go back to it but you're not yeah you're you're not trying to like milk it for everything it's worth like you you want to have that fondness for it still well, and that was the thing is that even when we were looking at the book and I said, okay, we might be able to make it to 35 or 40 issues, but we're on this cusp in terms of sales where I feel like we have enough room to tell the story I want to tell, tell it in the way we want to tell it and deliver the goods rather than kind of being forced out the door. So let's 30 feels like it's the right number when we were getting, you know, probably about halfway through, I could tell we were heading toward it. And I thought, okay, this is going to work. 
Like we've got all the pieces in place and now we can pay them off. And it's not going to feel like it's too sudden an ending, but it's also not, you know, we've covered the territory that I wanted to. And it's like, that's kind of the, the key there. Yeah. It's a, it's an interesting way to like that. It ends too, because it's, it's a very fast ending, but it doesn't feel rushed the way like, and this is not like a shot at any other books, but sure. like a lot of event comics, like whether it's like the yeah, Marvel they, events or stuff, their endings always feel so rushed. Yeah, they got to just sort of pop it out because, well, it's the last issue of the series or whatever. Yeah, I felt like we 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 thematically, you know, reflected back in a way that worked well. And the one thing I did say in the epilogue, and I was quite truthful, was I wasn't sure if the ending was going to be hopeful or not. Like I wasn't sure what headspace I was going to be in when I wrote that ending. And, and there were definitely versions of it in my head that were dark, that were all dark. And the, a lot of dark stuff happens in that ending. Yeah. But, but the, the final note is this slight uptick of there's, you know, more to discover. The world is, is going to evolve and move forward or whatever without spoiling anything. But, you know, that, that was important to me. And when I wrote it, I felt like that was the right note to end on. But, you know, uh, six months either way, I could have written a very different ending depending on how I was feeling. You know? Yeah, I mean, and that makes sense. I mean, that's, I guess that's kind of the nice thing about a creator-owned book is like, it's yours to kind of do with as you please to an extent. Yeah, and like, the only person I have to justify to is Steven, that if that Steven felt we did right by the characters as well, you know? Yeah. And, and that's one of the nice things about when I'm doing Stone Star with Max, it's like, Max, do you think this is cool? Yep, all right. That's the vote. We both voted. Let's go. Like <laughs> it's a it's a fun thing. Don't get me wrong. I love working on the commercial stuff, but there's obviously a lot more moving parts, you know. Yeah. And it's not just like free reign, and that's fine. I find that challenge also very creatively um, stimulating. Like coming up with something that is going to please my editor and please the licensor and please you know the editor in chief and, and fit within the continuity of existing, whatever Marvel comics or, or, you know, the requirements of wizards of the coast for, for dungeons and dragons and doing a damn good job and having them praise you is a joy, right? But you know that this is not yours. And that, that is always an awareness you have to have that my job has to not only be come up with the cool story, but if I want to do something really contentious, I have to convince them that this is the right path to take. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it, uh, that, yeah. that makes sense. <laughs> and, and, and it, you know, I think some people, readers have these two extreme viewpoints. They think either you're a corporate stooge and you're being told exactly what to write, or you have free reign and you can do whatever you want. And you're just like, running around the ranch causing chaos and it's like neither is hilarious of are, yeah neither of those things are true like it depends on your relationship with the editor it depends on how successful you've been that they're going to give you more creative leeway or whatever but part of your job has to be to convince them that this path you've suggested is the right one the most exciting one the most dramatic one and the one that will pay off in terms of sales right yeah. so so when when it comes to like the license stuff, because like right. I've only really ever talked with like um, independent creators, like either people that are like publishing their own stuff or like through image stuff like that. When you're like doing like a Marvel book or like who I'm sorry, who publishes the the D and D books? Is that IDW That's or Dark IDW. Horse? Okay, IDW. Yeah. Um, so like when you're working on stuff like that, where like they're it's licensed franchises, 
are you like going to Marvel and like pitching like Conan? Like, like, did you go to Marvel and be like, I'd like to write Conan after like when, when it's open? Like, here's my idea. Or do they like come to you for that sort of thing? Usually they're coming to you. So most of the time they're coming to you. Like it's it's pretty tough and a bit of an uphill battle for you to pitch a project cold and have them be like, yeah, we'll add that to the schedule. Most of their stuff is getting planned out pretty far in advance, or they know which characters they want to emphasize based on, you know, what's going to be in the movies or what they've got, you know, things like that. And so you are usually getting cast for a project where they will call you and say, are you interested in these characters or this stuff? You know what I mean? And then you're coming up with a pitch. So like uh, Jason Aaron was, you know, he's been doing Avengers he came up with the agents of Wakanda in the Avengers series. And they were like, Oh, this is a cool concept. We'd like to delve into this deeper, but not in the flagship book. And then Will Moss, the editor contacted me and said, is this something that interests you? Would you be willing to write, you know, black Panther and this agents of Wakanda book? How do you see this? And it's like, Oh, well I would do it like this. And they liked my concept on it. So then I was the writer on that series. So it's like, they came to me with the broad, concept but then i had to flesh it out and make it real you know what i mean okay and i guess like if they didn't like your pitch it would have been like well do you have anything else and right usually it's well how can we refine this like they still want me to be the writer because they've come to me there are times when you do what's called a bake-off where they will ask multiple writers to pitch and then they'll pick the one they like and that's always a tough circumstance because it is really a competition. And that's weird because, like, they're your colleagues and, in some cases, friends yeah. that you're like. <laughs> they won't usually tell you who else you're pitching against. So that's kind of the one saving grace. Sometimes you'll find out, like, months later, someone will mention that they pitched on something and you're like, ooh. Particularly if you if you beat them on it, you're like, ooh. Yeah, so. you, don't, you don't have to answer this if you don't want to and you don't have to name sure. names. But have you ever, like, been in a situation where you were doing that and, like – you were like a friend you were talking to, like you both just happened to say like, Oh yeah. Like I'm pitching this book yep. to Marvel right now. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Or what you'll, one of the things that's really awkward is you'll, um, you know, the, the editor has just told someone that they're going to be the writer on a project and you haven't been told yet that you're not. And then you'll hear from someone else that that book is now going forward. And you're like, well, it's not me. Oops. <laughs> you know, so that can be awkward as hell. Um, but yeah, it's just, those are not as frequent. They used to be more frequent, the bake-off stuff. Usually it's, I'm getting approached about a book. So Conan's a good example. Um, I did not think I was going to be the writer of Conan the Barbarian. I was not planning or gunning for it. It was actually kind of the reverse, which is a bit odd. Um, I had written Conan for the first time back in 2015. Gail Simone and I co-wrote a Conan Red Sonja team up that was co-published by Dark Horse and Dynamite went over really well in my head. I thought this is the only time I'm ever going to get to write Conan. So wrote it to the walls, did everything I could, you know, to make that book work. Cause I thought that's my only chance to ever write the character. And then we do the Avengers stuff. Uh, Tom lets us know that Marvel's getting the rights to Conan back. And he thinks for this second Avengers weekly thing we're doing, it would be great if Conan was involved. And it's like, well, I love this stuff. And both Al and Mark, Although they like Conan, they knew I was kind of the big fan. So they really let me lean into it and write all that Conan stuff. And it was like, awesome. Had a ton of fun with it. So proud to do it. And once again, in my head, I think this is the only time I'm ever going to get a chance to write Conan. But I want to write a solo story. No offense to Mark and Al and no offense to Gail, but there's something 
egotistical and nice about having that solo writing credit on this character that I love. Right. And so I, I don't want to do like the Conan Red Sonja miniseries was in the Hyborian age, but it's still a team up thing. And the Avengers thing is this weird multidimensional stuff. It's like not, neither of them are quite pure Conan, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, exactly. And so I go to Mark Basso, the editor on the Conan books. And I said, I, I would really love to just flex and do a solo Conan story. I know that the Savage Sword book is this anthology style where they have rotating creative teams. I'd love to throw my hat in the ring. I've got some ideas. And he said, yeah, man, you've proven you can write the character. Please pitch me. And so I pitched the story about that gambling hall and Conan properties loved it and Mark loved it. And so I got to do this three part story called the gambler. And in my head, this was my mic drop. I'm, this is how I think Conan should be written. This is what I think is a classic Conan story with a bit of a twist. And if you let me write this and they did, I will be happy because I got that out of my system and I've done it. Do you know what I mean? Like I've written a Conan story that I feel like it's pretty pure. The response from the readers was really strong. Um, Pat Zerker drew the book and they were so happy with what he did that they ended up getting him as the regular artist on Savage Avengers, where Conan was running around the Marvel Universe. Which is super so, weird. Like, it's not a bad yeah. book, but, like, that's just such no. a weird concept to me. Yeah, it's a funky <laughs> book. It's really out there. Jerry does a great job with it. But, um, you know, for me, it was like, I thought Savage Sword and the Gambler story was my last sort of crack at the character. And instead, that just convinced them I had a good handle on the character. So they came back and said, look, we want to expand our license and we want to do more Robert E. Howard characters would you be, but most people don't know those characters. Would you be willing to write a, uh, like a team up? And that's where Serpent War came from. So I wrote, um, Solomon Kane and Dark Agnes and this character called James Allison from the Robert E. Howard stories and Conan and Moon Knight all in this crazy cross dimensional time spanning epic. It was a four issue miniseries, had a ton of fun doing it. And when the first issue was getting, I, did so much research on all those Robert E. Howard stories. And I tried to write it as epic and bombastic and big as I could. Cause again, in my head, I thought this is my last chance to write Conan. And I got done the first issue and I sent it in and, um, Mark loved it. CB Sabolsky really loved it. And the Conan properties really loved it. And what I didn't know was that Jason was getting ready to step off the main book. So I had just no way of knowing that he was wrapping up after 12 issues. And so, Internally, they all knew they were looking for a new writer and I was essentially auditioning in real time because I had done the gambler and then I did Serpent War. And the minute the first issue of Serpent War came in and everyone was happy with it, Mark said, hey, can we get on a call? And in my head, I kind of thought, oh, I'm in trouble because <laughs> Who wants to normally get on a call? everything's over. Everything's on email. Why is he calling me? Like, do they hate it? Like, are we starting from scratch on issue one or is this crossover not happening like you know all kinds of things you, in your head you get worried about yeah and he calls me up and he says we want to offer you you know conan the barbarian like we want you on the flagship book you're our first choice um and i didn't accept it immediately contrary to what you know might assume even with a bucket list character like that because at the time i was co-writing iron man i was doing a lot of D D stuff i was really 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 overwhelmed i was doing agents of wakanda and I'm like, if I take Conan, I can't mess this up. Like, not that I want to mess up any project, but like this character is so important to me. Like you said, bucket was, list character. Yeah. Do I have enough ideas or did I kind of blow my 
my wad on 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 the gambler and do i do i want do i have enough cool conan material in my head or is it just an assumption like an egotistical thing of well of course i want to do the flagship book right and so i i said to mark give me like 24 hours i just need to like think this over i'm you know probably yes but just give me a bit and and i kind of thought about it and i called up tom my editor on on iron man and i said i gotta step away from co-writing iron man because i need room to concentrate on this. And he was totally supportive. Like he knows how much Conan means to me and everything else. So I freed up a bit of time on my schedule. And then I just hunkered down and I wrote a bunch of ideas that would become into the crucible and land of the Lotus and all this stuff, just to make sure I had enough juice, like that I had enough material to build on. And, and once I did that, I turned around and I said to Mark, yeah, let's go. And like, I'm going to tear the hell out of it. Like, let's, go as as big as we can you know that that's awesome i I know it's getting late so i won't keep you too much longer no no worries it's probably a fair assumption that like fantasy is kind of your thing like sword and sorcery and yeah i'm a junkie for it i love dungeons and dragons i grew up on that stuff i bleed d20s whatever you want to call it like i'm i'm all i'm into that you know oh so you so you play dnd too you don't just write about it oh i've been playing dnd since i was eight years old oh Oh, wow yeah actually my my two co-hosts, um, they they play in a couple campaigns together, um, and sure. we're we're actually going. Uh, th- I mean, this is you know here nor there. Um, we're going to be launching like an actual play show in the fall. Oh, great! So, awesome. um, yeah, I've been playing for you know like thirty-seven years. I've been playing D anD D every edition. I've I have a huge collection of books, and I've been during the pandemic. I've been buying up more old books and like filling in gaps in my collection and stuff. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, even my. I am not a player myself. Um, I've it's. Mm-hmm. I really like the the imagination part. Um, it's the math and the dice that has always turned me off in the weirdest way. Well, you see, this is the thing. Uh, if you're using like D and D Beyond, which is the the digital platform for character uh, creation and stuff, it will auto calculate all the dice stuff. So you literally just really? click on attacking or things like that, and it'll do all the math, and it just spits out a number at the bottom. It's no really one's ever told me that before. It's amazing. It's amazing. Yeah. It's one of my, uh, I know so many people that use it and they just love it because it, you can just focus on the character and you can focus on the role play stuff. And then all the crunchy bits get sort of, you know, calculated in the back. That's actually really cool. Yeah. I had no idea. I might have to rethink my stance then. Um, (laughs) We'll bring you back into the fold. Uh, so, but like, so you being like, like the big fantasy guy, like, yeah. How do you keep, track between like like you write like these D books but like right. you're also writing conan or you know you had skull kickers or right. even when you were on champions you had um that arc in champions where Very, weird where world, they went to right? weird world yeah and all the fantasy stuff all the pieces it, to me like you know fantasy is not one obelisk like it's not all one thing you know, fantasy is there's slices of it, right? Some of them are darker and some of them are pulpier. Some of them are high fantasy or some of them are what I call low fantasy, which is like these morally bankrupt characters doing anything for coin or whatever. And, and there are different kind of slices of it. And so the way I look at a Conan story is like this, you know, hard hitting pulpy Roy Thomas by way of Robert E. Howard kind of soaring narration and everything has got this gravitas to it. And if there's little moments of humor, there are little tiny bits of character humor that, that punctuate, but it's never silly. And of course the stakes are always really high. 
you know, and then Dungeons and Dragons is this very colorful, very magic rich environment that has very quirky monsters and locations. And so the world element of it has such a different sweeping kind of feel than the Hyborian age. Right. So it's just like getting in the way that when you play Dungeons and Dragons, you are role-playing. When I write, I'm role-playing. I'm role-playing d and I'm role-playing Conan. I'm role-playing the Avengers. Like I am, what is the mode that I need to be in in order to deliver the kind of story that I feel is appropriate, right? So okay. Skull Kickers is me at nine years old playing Dungeons and Dragons with my older brother and everything is causing shit and making jokes and being stupid. Because that's what Skull Kickers is. Skull Kickers is like this sugar shock of of sword and sorcery stupidity. But that's not D&D. Like D&D is a little more serious, but that we can have more funny kind of colorful moments compared to Conan. And then Conan is this darker kind of turn, right? And this survival is, you know, at the utmost kind of priority and all this sort of stuff. So it's just turning those dials, trying to understand which kind of fantasy story I'm telling, right? Okay. And champions, when they went to Weird World, it was a bunch of fantasy tropes, but those kids and their personalities still define that hopeful, colorful air that champions can have still permeated the story, even though they were in, you know, they're in Weird World, right? So Okay, that that does make yeah. sense. Yeah, because, I mean, to me, it's like not being somebody that writes this stuff. It just seems weird in my, in my head to be like, how do you keep track of like these different fantasy worlds and make sure that you're not, you know, like crossing the streams essentially? <laughs> yeah, I, I do kind of, you sort of, I, I try and write, you know, I, it's rare that I would write the same, uh, sorry, let me start that again. It's rare that I would write two different projects on the same day. Like most days I'm like isolating and going, okay, today is a Avengers day or today is a whatever. And it's almost like psyching yourself up for it. You know, it's like, it's like, being in theater and getting ready for a role or something. So you're like, today's Conan day. So I got to get into that pulpy mindset and I got to, you know, get my best soaring narrative kind of brain going and, and, and kind of drill into it. And the same kind of thing, if I'm writing whatever, you know, whatever project I'm working on. So I'm doing this Avengers tech on book, which is Bandai and Marvel teamed up uh, on this weird kind of over the top Japanese Sentai version of the Avengers and it's like wacky and crazy. And, and the artist I'm working with, Chamba, does these incredible animation style visuals. So I'm just sort of trying to dial into his strengths and what I think that stuff should be. But I can't just immediately turn around and flip the switch and go, all right, now Conan. Like that's like almost like a cool down period and then a warm up again to get into that mode, you know? Yeah. And that, I guess that makes sense. And I guess like I never really thought about it like that as like, yeah, I guess you're not sitting down in like, you know, in the morning you're writing half a Conan script, and then in the afternoon right. you're jumping over and writing, you know, D and D or Avengers or no, something like that. If I've done that, if I if I do get myself into a corner where I'm overlapped on projects and I have to write, you know, a chunk to throw to the art team, that means the schedule is not going well. It's happened, but I try and avoid it at all costs, right? Which I don't and blame even you. Then, I'll try and get some separation. So if I had to do that, like let's say I'm flying to a convention. And on the flight, I literally pull my laptop out and I do some writing. I might write whatever I'm working on, one project. And then I arrive, I go to the hotel, I grab a shower, I kind of tidy myself up. And okay, now I'm going to sit down and write pages for a different project. But even that that gap sort of allows me to step out of one and then 
you know, psych up for the other. Yeah, you're not just like you're not you're not hitting save as and then just opening up another right. word doc. Right. The hardest thing is if an editor says, "Oh, we you know we need these revisions uh, right now," and you're like, "Oh, I was right in the middle of writing Conan, and now I got to stop everything I'm doing and I got to rotate and and change this scene or or fix this thing and get myself into the other headspace." That's where it's sort of like a weird like jumping the tracks, you know. Yeah, that that seems like it'd be weird, especially if it happens to be like a similar like if it's two fantasy books. Like, yeah, so I'm sure like, going um, from like Conan to like Avengers or something like that is a little, it's a yeah, jarring it's weird, change. But you're at least like, okay, I can get out of the one and into the other or whatnot, or you know. But it is like a, a weird. It is a form of role play where you're essentially getting into character and getting into the mode for the thing that you're watching. You know. Yeah, you because you have to think yeah. like the characters so that you know what you're going to have them do. Yeah, it's a weird thing where like if you're writing Captain America. You have to think in a more idealistic way than you do by default. You have to imagine that people are better than maybe I even think they are by default. You know what I mean? Like I have to, what would Steve Rogers do? How would he see this situation? And what would he expect from people? You know, and there, it can be a good exercise to kind of put yourself in other people's shoes and think about, well, if Steve believes in people and he thinks that the Avengers can overcome this or that people, you know, don't have to fall to their own fave, you know, failings. Maybe I should be a little bit more optimistic sometimes, you know, it can, it can sort of rewire you a little bit. Yeah. And I I think that's something that like people don't necessarily give like the, the writer kind of enough credit for, if you will, where it's like, you have to kind of think, as the characters when you're figuring Ideally, out what they're going to do. You know, one of the things that can be awkward for me is when I'm reading a story by a writer and all I can hear is that writer's voice. You know what I mean? Like every character is spitting out dialogue the same way because that's the way that writer likes to do it. That I find that really off-putting personally. Like I try and yes, it's a Jim Zub story, but I want you to believe that's what Conan would say. Not, not, Jim Zub trying to be a witty version of Conan. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. And I, like that's kind of what I said early on. Like going from Jason's run to yours, it still felt like the same book, right? And that you know that that means a lot to me, right? That that the characters feel like they are themselves. That when I'm writing Wanda Maximoff or I'm writing, you know, Pietro or any of those characters in the Avengers, that. I do my research and that they sound like they should sound that they have memory of their past adventures and they treat each other the way makes sense in terms of the storytelling. You know, all that stuff is that's part of the job. And if you're doing it well, the reader can appreciate you as the writer, but they're also being taken along for the ride with the characters that they know and care about. Yeah. And then if you do it too well, everyone on Twitter just yells at you for <laughs> whatever reason. <laughs> I don't know reason. about too well. I think, you know, and, and, the readers are passionate about this stuff and it's weird, right? Like obviously everyone wants to be praised and no one wants to get criticism. But on the other hand, I know why the fans get up in arms because they care about the stuff. If they yeah, didn't that's true. care about this stuff, you wouldn't hear anything. And to most writers, that's death. Like if they're not talking at all, it, you know, that's kind of, you're doomed. So you need to be able to, to, generate the stuff you also need to be able to kind of 
field the criticism and and that isn't to say that you never defend yourself or you don't argue ever but there's you know you try and pick your battles with that stuff like i try not to get into the online scraps if i can help it that's like, the right someone move. <laughs> generally it is yes <laughs> if someone has said something factually incorrect or they they they've made an assumption you know that is i can factually point to the thing like if they literally said the wrong artist on a book that i've written i will correct them you know what i mean like that that wasn't actually colored by so-and-so the colorist is this person do you know what i mean or yeah or if or if they say oh I can't believe you wrote this terrible thing. And I'll say, I didn't write that. That was a different writer. Like, like that's about the only time that I will kind of correct people because the rest of it's opinion, right? Like if you think that I ruined a character, like I don't want to get into it with you that you're the reader, you paid the money, you read the thing. I hope you enjoy it. Or I hope you stick around till you see what the bigger plan was and that you enjoy it in the end. Yeah. You know, as a fan, that's that irks me the most. Like when I go online and I see people like, oh, like this book is is awful. It's ruined. This person doesn't know what they're doing. I'm like, why? Why? Like, well, maybe they're only I, on I it for 10 it. issues and then everything gets set back to set. A, anyway, but they're, they're telling a story like see what their whole story is before you have that sort of visceral response to it sure and and i've been there like i've you know i've read these books too and i'll in the moment i'll have a knee-jerk sort of oh what the hell is this why are they doing that but now i've seen both sides of it so i've also got a sense of all right let's see how it all plays out yeah let's if if the book's not working to you for you to a point where you can't stick around till the end i get it but you're also not you know giving it a a you haven't seen the full thing, so you don't know. Right? Yeah. Mostly just don't be mean, right? Like <laughs> ideally if it was only that simple, but yeah, um, I wish like I said, <laughs> the, the readers are passionate and I totally understand that. And my job is to surprise and to engage them in the stories. Right. And if I do my job, well, I do shock them. Sometimes I do throw them off. I do sometimes, you know, make them shake their fist and Zub, what have you done? You know what I mean? Like, if not, then you're not going to remember that story at all. So better that I'm kicking the, the you know, the, the bee's nest every so often in terms of the, the story. It goes both ways, too. I mean, like, you also have, like, those moments where, like, people really resonate with it. And, you know, like you were saying before, like, seeing characters that you've co-created, like, being cosplayed by people. And right. it's like, right, that's amazing. And that's <laughs> all, it's all part and parcel of the thing, you know, like... And, and take the compliments and take the criticisms and hopefully come out stronger as a writer and a creator at the end. That's probably a good note. Yeah, that's a good note to end on. Yeah, yeah. Um, is there anything that you want to sort of like promote? I, I know like with, like you have Conan going on right now. You have sure. Avengers coming up. You, you have a Patreon that you, that you um you like do tut- tutorials are probably aren't the right word for it, but like you kind of get yeah, into no, your I'll, creative I'll process. Yeah, at jimsub.com, I've got obviously promoting all my upcoming books, but I also have a series of like 40 plus free articles about how to make comics. So how to pitch stories, um, how to write scripts, how to work with editors and, and find artists and all that sort of stuff. Just stuff that I didn't see a lot of resources for when I was getting my start. Um, and then if people want to do a deeper dive, my Patreon's there. And for the price of a fancy coffee, you can dig through 250 plus scripts and pitches that i've done from over the years from just about every company 
to see how a story evolves from an initial concept through to finished published version. And um, that, you know, that's there for people. And when people tell me that they, they've enjoyed those resources and they've gotten a lot out of them and they've made their own stuff, that is the best compliment that, you know, I can get. Otherwise, um, I'm writing Conan the Barbarian. Our big anniversary issue 300 comes out in September. In August, Avengers Tech On number one comes out, which is this big, crazy collaboration with Bandai Japan and Marvel. Um, I've also got the first book I'm doing over at Vault. So they've been doing uh, books with Vampire the Masquerade based on the popular tabletop role-playing game. And uh, I get to bring werewolves into the mix with the World of Darkness uh, Crimson Thaw event that starts up in September as well. So you, you've got you've got a busy fall, it sounds like. <laughs> I mean, typically this is kind of my normal schedule. I'm usually doing three to four books a month. And so this is... Um, yeah, it's kind of the the standard, but they're all really cool. Not that they aren't normally, but these are particularly cool projects. Um, you know, Stone Star is out in trade paperback next week when we're recording this. So that will be early July. And that's a creator-owned book that I did at Comixology. But that's stuff from like a year and a half ago. And just now finding its way into print. Okay. Um, yeah, so it's a bunch of different projects on the go. And then I've got a couple more that are in development. Pitches that I'm putting together and... You know, all, it's a constant process where as you're finishing one project, the next sort of thing is, is you know, ramping up, but it won't be announced for several months. So you're always in this kind of development phase or secret phase or all kinds of cool stuff. Yeah, you're sitting there like, man, I'd love to talk about this with people, but I can't. Like, right. it's, not, it's not announced yet. It's like in six months. Yeah, <laughs> because, for example, you were asking about lead time, like the Bandai book, because we were working with the toy company we had to be done further in advance. So like Avengers tech on doesn't come out until August. I'm done writing it already. All six issues. Oh, wow. And that's that sixth issue won't come out till January, 2022, but I'm already done. So it's like, that's a rare lead time, but it's like, I'm going to be on the stands for six months, you know, with that book coming out and promoting it and whatever, doing signings and all that stuff, but I'll already be on to some other project, you know, deep writing it at that point. Oh, wow. Do you have any, um, do you have any shows that you're going to be going to anytime soon? I know, I know conventions are happening again. Sure. I've been offered on a couple. I haven't quite finalized anything that's ready to be announced, but there's a bunch of shows this fall because everyone's trying to get ramps back up after the pandemic. So it's like, I'm looking at three or four different shows and I probably can only pick like two of them based on my schedule. Um, I've also got an out of town comic shop signing that I had promised even before the pandemic that oh, I will wow. follow up on and just stuff like that. So I do, I, I am going to be ramping up appearances for the first time since late 2019, which is surreal and uh, exciting at the same time. Yeah. Get, getting on a plane again, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's going to be weird. Um, Cool. Well, again, thank you so much for, for being here tonight. My and pleasure. I hope uh, your listeners get something good out of it and that they uh, feel like they know a little bit more about, about how the sausage gets made. And like, definitely go check out Conan. Um, go go also read Wayward. Um, I know it's over, but like it's a really good book. Hey, go, you know. go buy it and read well, it. You um, know, I've been so happy that because it's all available in trade and on digital – we still get a lot of new people coming on board and, and telling us how much they love the series. So, Oh, which is awesome. Well, if you'd like to find more of our content, you can head over to www.one-quest.com. You can also help us out by going to patreon.com slash one quest. 
If you can't support us there with dollars, you can always subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon Radio. We're on all of them. Uh, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. We're at one underscore quest. And our email is social at one-quest.com. Right. Thank you for listening. Bye.